Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to John chapter 1, and we're going to look at John the Baptist. He's going to teach us a profound, profound lesson. There is, I believe that every man and every woman who belongs to Jesus Christ should in some way be speaking the word of the Lord. I believe your lips in a sense aren't your own. Your lips are holy unto the Lord. I, I think that's why in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that comes is, is spiritual language. Whether it be tongues and prophecy and, and you notice word of knowledge, all of those kinds of things. The Lord goes for the lips. James, Joel said, in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour forth of my spirit on your sons and your daughters. And they shall do what? Yeah, it's the mouth. Now, I say the mouth because, and I think the mouth is a, is a chief vehicle, but the way you speak the Lord can come in many forms. You can do it musically, you can write poetry, you can paint, you can photograph, you can, there's many ways, but you're called to express your faith. And I want to submit to you that when you do that, you'll be under assault. And I'm going to look at that assault, but I also believe there's a, there's a way that you and I process those assaults so that we're free to go forward in our calling. If you're silent, if you've allowed the oppression or the, or the introspection and all of those sorts of things to, to cause you to be silent and disqualified, or you're simply frightened and unwilling because of the pressures of it all, today's a challenge. It's an example from John the Baptist. We'll look at, we'll look at, the, we'll look at other apostles. We'll look at, we'll look at Jesus himself. And we'll look at us. And see what the Lord says. He wants to speak one way or another through you. If you belong to Christ. Father God, open the word. And open our ears. Open our eyes. We want to hear and see the things of God. We will bring to you soft hearts. Obedient hearts, Lord. Even when you cut us, even when you press us, we want to believe. When you encourage us, we need so much hope to arise. And I pray for faithfulness, Lord, to your word and and a love for your word and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. I'm going to start at John 1. I'll read from verse 19 down to verse 28. This is the testimony of John. And this is John speaking, but it's John the Baptist he's talking about. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites. Would you say priests and Levites? That's actually an important clue as to what's going on in this situation. Sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, well, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. The Elijah reference is is to the promise of the prophet Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'd prepare the way and turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. In other words, the the generations would begin to teach the word of the Lord again and walk in it. 
And then he says, are you the prophet? That means a second Moses, Deuteronomy 18. And I have the reference again in there. Uh, Moses said, there will rise up from among your midst a prophet like me. And so they were waiting for a second Moses. When would he come? And that's who they're asking. Are you, are you any one of those? And he said, no. And I said to him, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Would you say a voice? A voice. Yeah, notice that. He's, he says, I'm a voice. And he's, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse, verse 3 here. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. That's another clue. And they asked him and said to him, well, why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He's already here. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Those voices don't go away. We hear them, we don't hear them once when we start out and then they cease. They keep nagging us every time we speak for God. We tend to feel inadequate before we speak and ashamed of something we said afterward. Does that resonate at all? Yeah. You, you, you'll go, you go through all sorts of suffering before and then afterward you go, why did I say that? That's just nuts. It's literally part of the cross any believer will bear if he or she decides to step out and minister for Jesus. Studies have shown that the fear of speaking in front of others is a universal human fear. In fact, many people would rather undergo surgery than have to speak publicly. Can you say amen? <laughs> yeah. And it's not, that, it's not that difficult to understand why. Instantly, you are being evaluated. People are staring at you, assessing your appearance. Every flaw will be noticed. By the way, I, I have to not think about what I'm reading as I do this. Yeah. <laughs> they are observing your intelligence or lack of it. Are you smart? Are you eloquent? Did you say something tasteless or foolish? And then even if you pass those tests, they may still turn and walk away because they've decided you're boring. In their minds, you didn't say well what you came to say, and that's probably one of the most painful experiences of all. Not only do you tend to be hard on yourself, but clearly there are people who agree that you're a failure. <laughs> and you laugh. I don't have many weekends where someone, I have people getting up and I think they're going after their children, you know, or to the restroom, and I, I totally get that. But it's, it's every so often, and, it's, and I, it's, that's often enough, it's clearly not that. It is clearly, I've had it, not taken one more thing. And, and whole rows will get up and march out, you know, following somebody, many of them kind of going out like that. But whoever the, the leader of that troop is, is, is had it to hear with that garbage. And, and you just like put your head down and keep on going. And so, so far... All the fears we've mentioned are true for anyone who speaks about anything. We haven't even started on the additional factors a person faces who dares to speak about spiritual matters 
or worse yet, to confront others about their spiritual needs. Anyone who steps out into this dimension faces not only self-criticism and human evaluation, they face spiritual opposition as well. The devil steps into that situation and tries to distract us. Something always seems to occur before we speak, which tries to pull our minds off of what we're called to do. And then the devil works to distract our listeners. For me, it's Fridays. Something weird happens on Friday or some ugly report or some situation. I'm just real careful on, you know, don't tell me anything on Fridays because I, use, I get this, you know, and I got to deal with that and then also write a sermon and be ready for the weekend. Just, it's just normal. It's part of my life. It's, I've, I've come to realize the devil knows Friday. And it's none of you. you know, you're not I never come to service. Um, but what I have several times prayed over you. I'm generally praying during worship as well. The Lord would protect. I know the devil hates what's going on. And so he will confuse people. He will make them ill. He will, he will, they'll make them sleepy. Uh, they'll sit there and be tempted. I mean, you were doing fine. You got to church and the temptation just roars. Uh, you, 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 are, you are being uh, distracted or angry or all kinds of thoughts are just hammering at you. Why? This is spiritual warfare. When we pray for those young people just now, that's, what we're, that's, that's why we must pray. They can't, not only for their safety, but they can't have effect but what that is driven back. And that's where Jesus gives us the authority, doesn't he? He says, when you, whatever you bind, he says, he sent him, sent him out. Whatever you bind in, in, you know, in my name, I give you that authority. And then they, they, they you can trample underfoot serpents and scorpions. And he's not talking about going to Arizona. He's talking, he's talking about spiritual serpents and scorpions. He's talking about the things of the devil. You, and they came back, it said to him, joyful, saying, Lord, even the demons respond to us. We all, you know, these broken, depressed, hurting people, we were able to silence that garbage and it left. Yeah. Okay, that's the authority we have to use. And I think as you and I are learning to use that and walk in that, that's why we can send teams into some of these situations we just could not have done if it was a more immature congregation. It just couldn't happen. I'm not flattering you, just telling you. We're learning to walk in the things God has equipped us with. Something always seems to occur before we speak, which tries to pull our minds off of what we were called to do, and the devil works to distract our listeners. He tempts, confuses, brings illness, reminds them of sins they committed, points out every flaw he can find, and invents some, if none, are immediately available. All of this is going on inside people's minds while you're trying to communicate something for God. It's a wonder we ever succeed in reaching another person's heart. But we do. And at amazing levels. That is, if we don't allow that opposition to silence us, that's really the only way the power to stop the power of God's truth. Through all of that, the only really effective way of silencing the power of God's word is if you choose to remain silent. In all of your weakness, in all of this nonsense, in all of the confusion, if you and I are silent, that stops it. But if in our weakness, in our brokenness, we step out and we speak, God works.
you need to see what's going on uh, there with John the Baptist. This isn't just an innocent exchange. It looks like a nice little group comes out and asks him if he's, if he's the Messiah, you know, all that. I, I think there's much more going on. I'll show you why. Many of the religious leaders in Jerusalem were priests or Levites. Remember I had you say those words? But I believe there's a reason that the Apostle John specifically mentions that they sent priests and Levites to ask the prophet who he was and why he was baptizing. He even mentions that it was the Pharisees among other leaders who, who sent them. Priests and Levites were generally Sadducees, not Pharisees. So why would Pharisees send Sadducees to represent them? The men they sent may have been experts in religious rituals whose purpose was to question John about the appropriateness of using ritual washing as an expression of repentance. Because such washing was normally used for ceremonial cleansing. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you, but you get into that Orthodox Jewish culture, it is. There's no mystery to them about baptism. They, they, in a, they, they, there were people in that day who were, who, were, who, were, who were in effect baptizing themselves or ritually washing themselves three times a day. There were people every morning they got up and did it. Uh, there's, there's hundreds of these things around the temple area. You always washed yourself before you went into the temple you, or before you went into some kind of act of worship. So this is a normal part of life in a sense. And John has taken this symbol and is using it in a radically different way. You, you remember, the, the, I'll just remind you, what was that ritual washing, what did it look like? Well, fresh body of water is one, but if you don't have a fresh body of water, then you, then you can have a tank of fresh water. It has to be fresh, at least 80 gallons. And they have these stairway down, and you would, you would, you would go down into that, you'd walk, there's, it's divided stairway, and there's a clean side and a dirty side. Right side's clean, left side's dirty. So you go down the, the, clean, the dirty side, did I say it right? I get on the dirty side, you stand on the tank, and you, you immerse yourself. You, you pray whatever prayers, and then womp all the way under, and you come up. And then you walk up the clean side. And what you've done is you've washed off the ceremonial contamination. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've touched anything the Bible calls unclean. Uh, name some things that the Bible calls unclean. A dead body, if you've even brushed against it or walked over a tomb, you know, by accident, you're ceremonially unclean. Uh, and, and, it'll, and you can't bring that junk into God's presence. So you had to wash that off. Uh, if you'd happen to have uh, had to shake a hand of a Gentile, uh, you might be ceremonially unclean because you know no telling where that Gentile's been. So, you know, there's just all of this. So they're having to wash this stuff off to be in the presence of the Lord. But here's John taking people, using this baptism symbol in a totally different way. I think they're out there challenging him. They sent experts out to go after him. Their assignment may not have been to ask innocent questions about John's identity, but rather to challenge his right to do what he was doing. Ritual washing was common activity. I mentioned this, a person would step down to a tank of water. If they touched anything unclean, they were washing away physical impurities so they would not bring them into the presence of the Lord. But John was using this model to wa of washing in a radically different way. He told the people they were spiritually impure. 
because their attitudes and lifestyles were unacceptable to God. He said the Messiah was coming soon and they needed to repent to be ready to meet him. He taught them to express this rejection of their old sinful ways by immersing themselves in water. He undoubtedly prayed with them before they did this and may have helped them lower them into the water. But the baptism that took place was a form of prayer, calling on God to be merciful to them and wash away their sins. In order for us to understand why this was seen as a threat by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, we need to view this baptism from their perspective. People were leaving the temple ceremonies, which were supposed to make them acceptable to God, and going 20 miles out into the Judean desert to listen to a prophet who was declaring that those temple rituals had failed to make them righteous. He warned them that if the Messiah arrived and found them in that spiritual condition, he would reject them. To become acceptable to God, they needed a far deeper form of cleansing, spiritual cleansing, than the ministries the high priest and the temple were providing. Those ceremonies had not made them righteous before God. They needed a changed heart. So priests and Levites were sent to ask John, who are you? Because if he were the Messiah or Elijah or the second Moses, then he might have some justification for his message. But if not, it was presumptuous of him to challenge the religious establishment. His answer to them, in effect, was I'm merely a man calling people to do what the prophet Isaiah told them to do. In other words, he was saying, it doesn't matter who I am. What matters is the truth I'm proclaiming and the repentance that takes place in people's hearts. I'm not God's answer to our needs, but he sent me to prepare people to meet the one who is. He refused to be drawn into a debate about his own qualifications as a prophet or the method he was using to minister. Do you sense where I'm going? John the Baptist wasn't the only one people challenged this way. In fact, if we look carefully at the scripture, we'll observe that virtually everyone who spoke for God was questioned about their worthiness. Questioning Peter and John. Let's look at Acts 4. I want, to, I want you to see the attack, as it were, the... The, the, the way they were uh, attacked in this. Peter and John have made the horrible mistake of, 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 of healing someone uh, and, and it being an undeniable miracle. Okay, so there's a real stir going through the whole uh, temple area and that area of Jerusalem. And so they get hauled in in front of the, the here we go, the high priests and, the, and the, the Sanhedrin. And notice there in chapter 4, verse 1, the Sadducees, <laughs> again, the priests and Levites, they, they came up, you know, and were greatly disturbed because he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. And um, then I'll, they get hauled in front of the high priest. They get, you know, why did you do this? And, and Peter says, if we're on trial for he, healing a sick man, we're, we're guilty. But he said, let it be known to you that it was the name of Jesus Christ. You know, the guy you crucified, uh, that's how this man was healed like that. And then he quotes scripture and tells them that they were the ones who rejected the stone that God wanted as a foundation. Notice his courage. And he says, there is salvation, verse 12, in no other, no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, here we go, and understood that they were what? 
uneducated and untrained. Say that. Yeah, uneducated and untrained. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having to been with another uneducated and untrained man who acted just like them. And that was? When confronted by an undeniable miracle, the religious leaders didn't listen to Peter's explanation of the miracle that had taken, of why the miracle had taken place. Instead, they looked for ways to discredit the two men standing in front of them. For them, it wasn't about trying to discover the truth of the message, but to find a way to undermine the messengers. In this case, they pointed to the fact that they were uneducated and untrained, just like Jesus. In philosophy or a court of law, it's called ad hominem arguments. You don't argue the issue, you attack the other person. You, you, we're watching it more and more. In fact, I just had a lawyer say this to me, and it was just chilling. He said, in American courtrooms now, it is no longer the uh, it is no longer, American uh, courtrooms are no longer, it's no longer pursuing the truth of the issue, but it is the person who most successfully discredits their opponent that wins the case. Yeah. Wow. We've, we've gotten down to a dogfight. The one who wounds their opponent, who savages their character the best, is the one who wins. People, that's culture decline. That is, if that, it, I'm sure it's not always true. Can't be. But, uh, but that it's, th- this person was a lawyer who told me this. It was down when I was down in L.A. And um, it, it, was, he, it, it, was, it was a sad comment. It is the person who most successfully discredits their opponent in the American court of law now who wins the case. Wow. That's what people want to do. If they, if they can't argue with the truth, they want to go after you personally. Who are you? Who do you think you are to tell me anything? Don't you remember your life? Don't you remember your past? You don't have any education. You don't have any training. What gives you the right to say this? Not even talking about what you said. Going after you personally. Second, questioning Paul. Paul faced severe criticism, but it was harder to discredit him because he was highly educated. He was a Pharisee, and he belonged to a respected family. So he had the credentials that should have qualified him to speak with authority. But Paul struggled with a different kind of attack. The voice that tried to undermine his confidence was his right to speak about Jesus, uh, in his right to speak about Jesus, came from his memory of the terrible things he had done in the past. He had been a blasphemer of Jesus and had tried to force Christians to renounce Christ. One fact we're never told is whether he actually succeeded in making a weak Christian turn away from Jesus. Neither he nor anyone else mentioned such a thing, but if he did, after he met Christ, the memory of that must have tormented him. I'll show you a scripture in a minute, but we often just take it lightly. We don't really understand what he's saying. And he says, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, you go, yeah, nice. That's, that's really humble of you. Nice, you know, going, Paul. 
No, he was. He really was. He was going around for a significant period of time, from synagogue to synagogue. He virtually cleared through Jerusalem and Judea and is now branching clear out into Damascus when he finally meets Jesus. But he would go to these synagogues and they would have informers. Who is one of these followers of the way? This uh, Jesus, the Nazarene. Do you have followers in your midst? Yes, that lady over there, this one over here. They, they would have them. They would spy on each other. They report each other. And then he would haul them and he had police with him, religious police. And, and they would haul these people and they'd grill them and they would try to get them to renounce Christ. And if they, if they wouldn't, he had the authority and he did this. He says so. I give you the scripture. He did this. He would, the, if it was a man, they would strip them down naked to the waist, stretch them out and hold them on the floor. And he, with a, with a, with a leather whip, would lash them up to how many times? He had up to 39 times. 40 is the limit. Yes. 40 is the limit because in that, the thinking is you will have so degraded the individual that you, have, you, will, have, you will have brought such shame. It's not right. And so he's sitting there with them stretched out on the floor going, renounce him, renounce him. He's, a, he's and he's probably saying horrible things about Jesus. Renounce him, Whoosh! renounce him. And they did it to women. They did not strip them down, I, I'm sure. These are Jews. But they put them on the, and they, Whoosh! renounce him. God forbid that some did. That some in their weakness and in the pain renounced Christ and called him a blasphemer and turned away. Whether they did or not, Paul deserved a millstone. You know what I mean? Hopefully it never happened. But what did happen was bad enough. He tried to make people forsake Jesus. So after he realized that Jesus is the Savior, he bitterly understood that what he'd been trying to do was send people to hell. That memory would make it hard for anyone to boldly proclaim Christ. But he did. Listen, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Now with those ears, knowing what he did and what he's talking about, listen to the way he says this again. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I was stupid. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing the right thing. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith, the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He really was. I mean, David had a man killed. That's terrible. He slept with a man's wife. That's awful. But David didn't stretch men and women on the floor and lash them on their backs to renounce the Savior. Saul was stupid. He was impatient and proud. But Saul didn't lash people on the floor 
and have them renounce Christ. Paul did. You've done awful things. But I don't think there's anybody in the room who stretched people on the floor and lashed them till they renounced their Savior. He did. When he says, I'm the worst, he's totally right. He really is. He really is. And then he's, but what does he say about this? Notice this. This is really important. It didn't silence Paul. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. God has held me up as an example that he'll forgive anybody. That his grace will cover the sin of anybody. I need to, to stress this. There are those people, and I, I'm, I, I've, I've had you talk to me here. I've had, I've had all along, I've had people who will come and at some point say, you don't know what I did. And they sometimes tell me what they did. And I've heard horrible things. I've heard what, what soldiers did on the battlefield. I have heard, I have heard uh, sexual things. I have had people confess to me. I, I'm thinking of one man particularly. He isn't in this area at all. You don't know him. But he, 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 this is the, one of the brightest, most capable uh, men, and yet he would never step out really and minister much. I mean, it was always restrained. You thought, what is wrong with him? What is wrong with this guy? And finally one day he said, I, I, I just need to tell you. So, and he filled in that he had done something awful in, in high school. And it was. Um, and he said, now you know the rest of the story. And it broke my heart. Because in his mind, what he had done disqualified him the rest of his life. Now he knew he was a Christian and he was doing little things for God. He loved the Lord, wasn't that that? I don't think he thought he was going to hell for it. But he thought he was ruined. That men like that, people who do stuff like that can never be used. Not really. And Paul's argument here today is for some of us. You say, I've done things that can't be forgiven. No, you haven't. If God can forgive Paul, and he has, don't you love that term, perfect patience of Christ Jesus? In other words, in other words this powerful mercy, this powerful mercy of his, that really, he says, he can take me, chief of sinners. I don't think Paul ever got over this. Some of you, oh, yes, he did. Oh, well, good for you. I think if you had done that, I think it was something that nagged him. The faces, the people, the memories of those things. He would always have to cover it with the blood, I'm sure. To say, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. But notice it didn't silence Paul. He knew he had grace. And you and I need to know that too. There's nothing we have done that disqualifies us if we've come to the blood of Christ. May I add, or even continue to struggle with, 
If you and I think we have a right to, to a guilty conscience about our past, no one has done anything worse than what Paul did. He tried to destroy people's faith in Jesus. He deserved a millstone. What's that reference? It would be better for you if you rather than you cause, you cause, he said, Jesus says, stumbling blocks must come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would have been better for him to have a millstone. And I, I don't know if you've, if you've been in Israel, you know what a millstone is. I've shown, I hope I've shown you some pictures of them. These are massive things. And have him thrown into the sea. In other words, it'd be better that you died than you did those things. And Paul did them. Questioning Jesus. When we reflect on the attacks that came against, come against a person who chooses to speak for God, Sooner or later, we realize that no one experienced this kind of questioning more deeply than Jesus himself. He was not, not, he was not only criticized by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but by the people in his own hometown and even by members of his own family. At first, early in his ministry, he virtually had no support outside of the testimony of John the Baptist and God. Though, to be fair, I think his mother always believed. No one could question the truth he was speaking or the works he was doing. They were real and obvious, so his opponents inevitably attacked him personally. Watch. Well, Matthew, thir Matthew 13, you'll recall this. His hometown saw only a carpenter's son. And that same hometown tried to kill him. He starts speaking and they said, who is this? We know, his, we know his father, he's a carpenter. We know his brothers, they're all with us. How, where did he get this? They go back to his whole thing. He's just, he's a hometown boy. How, he's, he can't be anything special. And then the, that same hometown, of course, tried to kill him. Mark 3, his own family thought he had become insane. And came to take him home. Did you know that's in there? Yeah, look it up later. I, Jesus is, 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 I think he's there in Capernaum. He's in the house, in a place. He's packed with people ministering. And somebody comes in and says, your mother and brothers are outside waiting for you. And it says they had come to take him home because he felt he was beside himself. He was nuts. You can hear the discussions at home. Mary was there too. I think she gets dragged into this thing. And you just know that they're going, Mom, you've got to quit sticking up for him. He's crazy. Nobody does this. He's a nut. He thinks he's, a, he thinks he's God. We've got to get him home. So Mom's dragged along, I think. And those brothers, there's brothers. They don't believe him at all. And they're outside saying, come on out, you're going home. What was his reply? Who are my father and mother and my sisters and brothers? Those who do the will of God. And he didn't come out. That's a very painful thing. You know, you look at that story. That's an ugly, painful story right there. John 7, his brothers literally mocked him. They, they thought he was ambitiously trying to draw attention to himself. On that last, that last uh, third year, when he's going to, before he goes down to, to Jerusalem, they say, hey, you better get down there so your crowds can admire you. You, know, you don't want to do things secretly. You get out there and let everybody know how good you are, okay, bro? And, and he says, uh, your time is always at hand. But he says, it's not my time yet. And then after they left, 
he went down quietly. Matthew 12, highly religious people couldn't deny that he was successfully casting out demons. So they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, Lord of the flies, the ruler of the demons. How does he have such authority? Can't deny what's happening. I mean, he's casting devils out of people. They're in their right minds. Things are changing. It's just you can't get away from the fact that it's happening. So what you say is, well, the only reason he has authority is he's demonically possessed and he is himself Casting out devils by the demonic power in him. And then I want you to see this one. Go to Matthew 21. Verse 23. Because this ties everything together in a sense. It comes around full circle. Matthew 21 verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Does that sound like what they asked John? That same old question. Here we go. And Jesus said to them, I'll also answer you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also answer you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from from what source? From heaven or from men? Was John the Baptist really a prophet? Was that a true ministry of God at the Jordan River? Or was he just a fool out there raving in the desert? Now, how did they handle it? They began to reason among themselves saying, "Uh, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? Because they clearly didn't. See, they're opponents. But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And they answer, answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And he said, well, then neither do I. <laughs> neither, will I neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you won't give me an honest answer, if you're not, if you're not walking in your integrity, I won't waste my time discussing this further. By the way, there's a real lesson there, isn't there? If you're dealing with that kind of thing, just go quiet. Stop. You're not, you're not getting anywhere. Back to our text. Questioning you. Who do you think you are? Why don't you say that? Who do you think you are? How dare you say that what we're doing isn't good enough? Do you think you're someone special? If not, what gives you the right to tell us what we need to do to please God? Anyone who steps up to speak or minister on the Lord's behalf will face such questions from people who know all the gory details of your history. Hey, we remember you when from people who knew you before you became a believer. And if they don't say, say anything, the devil will. He'll bring up memories about your past or areas where you continue to struggle. He'll work hard to stop you from going through with what God has asked you to do. One of the reasons that you and I experience the severity of temptations and assaults we do is so that we will fail, so that we will feel guilty, so that we will shut up. He needs to silence us. That's really what it's about. 
which means, which is why we got communion trays across here on a regular basis, which is why we continually talk about the blood and power of Jesus Christ, is, is as we're getting free, as we're learning to walk in victory, God, we need to keep being cleansed and cleansed in our conscience so that we can speak for the Lord. Amen. We can continue to serve him. He'll work hard to stop us from going through with what God has asked you to, you to do. He'll try to distract people's attention while you're speaking. He'll try to distract your attention. And if he doesn't succeed, there's always our own inner doubts, our fears of failure, rejection. We can be our own worst critic. We might be the one who reminds us of all we don't understand about God and the Bible and who offers the suggestion that we'd better wait until we're able to answer at least most of those big questions before we step out for God. I, you know, I can't, I really shouldn't be saying anything yet. I have all kinds of big questions of my own. There's so much about the Bible I don't know. I'll wait till I get those answered and then I can maybe step out. You know, once I figure out the Trinity and once I figure out, I just, when I got that down, I'm, you watch me. You just watch my smoke. <laughs> but if we allow those doubts to remain in our minds, we'll go silent. We'll wait for someone more qualified to do the job, not realizing that they are going through the same torment. All of this is why John the Baptist's example is such a blessing to us. He has shown us how to answer these doubts. John basically said to these attacks, you're right. I'm not someone special. I'm just a man calling people to do what God's word tells us to do. How did he say it? He said, who are you then? I am a voice. voice. Say a voice. voice. I'm a voice, just a voice in the wilderness, crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet has said. Who I am isn't important. It's the savior I'm proclaiming who's important. I'm not holy, he is. I'm not your source. He is. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I can't remove your sins. He can. I'm not the one you need to believe in. He is. John refused to let the argument be about himself. He was just the messenger, not the message. It was this humility that protected him and endowed him with such authority. That is really an important statement right there. It was this humility that protected him and endowed him with such authority. When I, when I teach people to, to, to preach and all, one of the things when someone's about to speak or something, I'll often say this, don't think about what people think of you. Think of, focus on your message. Your job is to say what God's given you. Focus entirely on that and let what happens happen. You see the difference? Either you're worried about what do they think, how's this going, or you simply focus on the truth you're proclaiming. You do it lovingly and kindly. I'm not saying be a, be a freight train coming through. But you focus on the truth that you have to bring, and you leave it for what it is. You let God do the work with his word. It's the key. It's what kept John going. It's what kept Jesus going. All of them. They focused on the truth of what they were proclaiming. He wouldn't let people focus their attacks on him. Was he worthy? Absolutely not. 
He wasn't even worthy to serve as the Savior's slave and take off his sandals. But someone had to tell people they were in trouble. Someone needed to warn them. So he did. And the truth he proclaimed carried with it a power of its own. Because it was true. Because it was based on God's word. His job was simply to be a voice. To let God speak through him. That's all. That's enough. God did the rest. Listen. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then look how it's phrased. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. In other words, the whole city went out. And all Judea, the entire region, and all the district around the Jordan, what you need to realize is all, there's, there's, the Jordan River ran from the, runs from the, from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. It's 200 miles in length. It just ribbons all the way down there. And it's 80 miles in, in, in linear distance. But there's towns, hundreds of them, villages and towns and people all through that area. It's all this continued source of water and, and, and heat. It was, it's been populated as long as, it's the oldest, the oldest city on earth of anywhere in planet Earth is Jericho, right there. It, it's, this is very heavily populated. So when he says, he's saying people are pouring in to, see, to, to hear John. And they, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Why was he so effective? Because that voice spoke God's word. And there's power in his word. So people listened. They looked past the messenger and heard the message. If we'll step out and speak God's word, they will do the same. All we need to be is his voice. I'm going to read that statement he quoted from from Isaiah fully. A voice calling is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That talk about bringing down mountains, it's spiritual. Prepare a highway for the king into your heart. Get the obstacles out of the way. Get the, if there's sins and hidden stuff in the valleys, bring them up, bring them into the light. If it's rough, all of these, all of these distractions of the world, get them out of the way. Make a highway for the king. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. Make a way into his heart, your heart. And here's the promise. And the glory of the Lord shall appear. I want to submit to you, God did exactly what John the Baptist proclaimed. The glory of the Lord came out to the Jordan River and stood in front of John and said, baptize me. And John said, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And the glory of the Lord said, no, but let all, it must be done for, to fulfill all righteousness. I need to enact a death here. And so he baptized the glory of the Lord 
And when the glory of the Lord came up out of the waters, the heavens opened, and the Father said, My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of the Lord came on the glory of the Lord, on the word of the Lord. And he was filled with power, and he began to minister. John spoke the word, and the power and glory of God came. He will with you and me. You. I want to ask today, right now, this is the question I want to ask. Have you gone silent? Now, speaking is a, is a critical part of this, but speaking is not the only way we speak. Some of you are artists. Some of you are, some of you should, are, are, are blogging. Some of you are, are photographers. Some of you are, are, you dance. Some of you, some of you proclaim the Lord with drama. Some of you, I, there's just a, there's infinite amounts of ways through which God uses you to talk to the world about him. And he, you must not go silent. This is our generation. They must hear the truth. And you say, and this is my question, why are you silent if you have gone? Is it because of your past? Have you decided that you've done something that simply disqualifies you as a minister? You maybe understand you're going to heaven, but you really feel, I'm not worthy to be used. I can't be used. I'm unclean. Paul says to you, nonsense. Paul says to you, you aren't in my league. And he forgave me. And he used me. And he'll use you. That's a lie. And it needs to be rejected. Some of you say, I'm uneducated and untrained. I'm just like Peter and John. And Jesus himself. I don't have any Bible college. I don't have any seminary. I, I, I don't even like to read. And the Lord says to you, Open your mouth. I'll fill it. The Lord says to you, step out. Let, let, me, let me speak through you. Some of you have your family attack you. Your neighbors. They mock you for your silly religion. They let you, it's driven you into silence. The Lord says, don't be silent. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. I'll speak through you. I'll minister through you. These are critical times. Would you bow your heads with me just one moment? Anyone need to, anyone need to say, I, boy, I hear the word. And I hear how John handled this. I hear how he handled it. He, he said, it's not about me. It's about the truth of the word I speak. And there's power in the word of God. There's strong power that just cannot be taken out of that word. When I speak lovingly and faithfully the word of God, it cuts to the heart. It's like a two-edged sword. It can't be stopped. And he will speak his word through you, your lips. For your lips are holy. I, I don't know how to, I, I just, you got to understand something. When Jesus died for you, he not only died to, to atone your sin, to get the sin out of the way. He literally took on sinful flesh and by dying on the cross, condemned the sin in your flesh so that your very physical body, no matter what it's been through and done, and all of ours are contaminated, become holy and a suitable place for the Spirit of God to dwell. 
and to never leave. You are holy, whether you think so or not. For Christ has made you so. And you need to let that lovely spirit have his way in you. You need to let that, those lips of yours, no matter how much cursing or, or, or lying or garbage has gone out of those lips, those lips are holy unto the Lord. And he will use them powerfully. Anyone need to say, I hear the word, I hear the word, and I won't be silent. Would you raise your hand if that's you? You need to say, I, I will not be silent. I will not be silent. I will let the Lord. Some of you are going to start dancing again, or you're going to start painting again, or you're going to start photography, or you're going to start writing again, or you start blogging again, you're going to start preaching again. You're going to start, I don't know what, and God's going to use you. Start teaching again. You need to be opening your mouth. You need to be opening your heart and letting, letting God speak through you. Hold your hands up. Father, see our hands. See our hands. I thank you for, for Lord, an army. An army of men and women. I, I, I feel, and as I said that, I got to say one more thing. Some of you women, you have been raised in an environment that said, because I'm female, I am not to really be speaking the Lord the word of the Lord. That's, that's a lie. It is not true. You are in Christ. Everything of Christ's is yours. That's what Paul teaches in Galatians 4. I can't spend the time to argue with you. But, but just, so, so just believe me. You are in Christ and God will speak through you as a woman every bit as quickly and as powerfully as he'll speak through any man. You've got to get rid of that. And if it's held you back, stop it now. You speak what God gives you to speak. Now, anybody else need to raise your hand while I said that? All right, Father God, see our hands. We are in. Our lips are yours. They're holy unto you. Give us power. Give us authority. Give us boldness. Quicken again the word of the Lord to us, and we will speak it. For we are not the message. We are your messengers. It is not that we are qualified. We aren't, except that you have made us quali qualified. You have set us apart to your service. Lord, we ask for open doors and open ears. We ask that this be a season in which the word of the Lord flows through us at a level it never has. Greater than ever, more than ever, that you will speak through our lips and through our lives. In Jesus' powerful name, if you really meant that, would you say, I'm a voice in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I believe this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.